millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly. But sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. How does a woman single-handedly start a social movement in a couple of weeks that brings over 100,000 people out into the streets to rally? And has Australia's March for Justice finally unleashed a long building roar about gender inequality with echoes around the globe? Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again. Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger. Thanks so much for joining us. And welcome back to our growing band of loyal listeners. If you're new to Broad Talk, a very warm welcome to you too. Well, it seems we just can't stop talking about that march and this moment. Men and women around Australia, and finally in our federal parliament house, are facing up to some long-buried, dirty and deeply disturbing truths about the treatment of women in this country. Truths about gender inequality, sexism, harassment, sexual violence, abuse and the deeply ingrained and systematic discrimination against women. A discrimination that has enabled men to maintain power and dominance over all leadership positions across the country – within every sector of industry, government and public life. But as we rip open the grubbiest truths about sexual violence and Australia's rape culture, what do we now do with all this energy, rage and momentum that has built? Well, to unpack that, I wanted to talk to the woman who started it all. Janine Hendry is a name most Australians had never heard of until her famous tweet back in late February of 2021. 
when she suggested that she and a few of her mates should draw up some placards and go and protest in front of Parliament House in Canberra. Well, as we know, it all exploded from there. But why, how and what was behind it all? We may not have known Janine's name a few weeks back, but we certainly do now. Janine Hendry, it's such a delight to welcome you to Broad Talk. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Virginia. Great to be here. Well, I said to you um, the day of the march, let's just wait a few weeks so you can have a bit of a break and let your head stop spinning and then and then catch up. Now, have you had a break? Has 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 the world around you stopped spinning and things slowed down? I think the short answer is not really, Virginia. I think I'd have to conclude that the march was actually just the beginning, that uh, the hard work really starts now. The march was great. We uh, started the uh, started to have started to change the narrative, but now the real work begins in terms of how do we take these voices forward to create the change that we need in Australia. Janine, let's just go back. And I mentioned that uh, tweet that you put out, um, which really got all of this started. What motivated you to to put out a tweet that basically said, let's go and protest outside Parliament House? What was it about? Like I think most of Australia, and particularly the women of Australia, we'd been watching the events in Parliament House unfold. And on the particular Sunday morning, I started reading the um, writings by Chantelle Conti, the young New South Wales um, schoolgirl, who had been compiling the Mm. sexual experiences of young women in New South Wales and then increasingly around Australia. And I went down the rabbit hole and within an hour, I, I was honestly, I was in tears. I just couldn't believe that this was happening to Me too. I, I did exactly the same. Oh. Yeah, I did exactly the same. And, and it just, I, I couldn't believe that here I am at my age reading this mm. and it is, it actually, it, it, it is worse than I, you know, 30, 40 years ago when I was that age. I, look, I absolutely agree. And I'd been reading this and then my um, 16-year-old son came upstairs and, and we was just sitting having breakfast together. And I looked at him and I thought, in two, three years' time, I'm going to be launching him out into the world. And his role models are the men and, and increasingly the women that are holding these positions of power in our in our government, in our law courts and in our major institutions. And they're not actually setting a really great example right now. No. And my anger just started increasing and I thought, I've got to do something. I can't. I can't conscionably send him into the world, having done my utmost to raise him to understand the issue of equality and issues around consent, when they're the people that are going to be influencing him in the greater world. And so on the top of that, and I've got to say the testimonials that uh, Chanel had collected were so horrifying, which made me realise too that young women are really confused about their own rights, about their bodies. They seem to have no barriers. They seem to think uh, that that they owe the boys in their groups their bodies. And 
I just, yeah, like you, I was horrified by this. But, but then when you heard about the, uh, the allegations coming out of Parliament House mm. and obviously the Brittany Higgins story and the fact that that was dismissed so quickly mm. by parliamentarians and that uh, she was very quickly, as is the tradition for women made out to be the, the bad woman, the witch, the whore, etc. Mm. Why did you think the protesting was, was worth a go? I think my the first thought was, Something's got to give here, and in all honesty, I didn't. I didn't think really beyond that. And I suppose what happened is, I put out the tweet, out the tweet, and realised that the, this visceral anger was coming not just from me, but from so many other women. And men. How did you realise that? How did uh, that come, become apparent? I put the tweet out and really it was the comments. The comments, the tweet went viral, comments were coming back and I could, I could almost feel the anger emerging out, mm. of my, out of my phone and I thought, it's not me. This has really struck a chord and people have had enough. That was what came through. We, we just... We don't want to live in a society where this is this behaviour is becoming the norm. So let's just talk for a moment about the logistics of this, because look, I've got to say, as a journalist and as a feminist um, and an activist over many, many decades, I'm fascinated by how you make this work, sure. <laughs> because I've never seen it happen before. I mean, normally women's groups are very active, and but they work in collaboration they work in great you know grassroots level mm. with a lot of organization this just happened bang like that sure. and you are not a, a rally organizer a protest organizer in fact as far as i understand you've never ever organized a, a protest about anything so how did you take what you were receiving via twitter and we all get all sorts of comments on Twitter, and and build on it so quickly. So I felt the I, I felt the visceral anger. So I made a decision to try and bring this anger together into one space. So I set up a, a Facebook group, which I quickly named Women for Equity or some such uh, some such thing, and tried to harness the anger, thinking that if I could bring these voices together, maybe we could dissipate what was there and maybe it would give people a forum that they could express really what they uh, felt. I then went off to bed, woke up the next morning and something like 10,000 people, men and women, had joined this group and I thought, oh wow, this is bigger than what I thought. So, I just started um, thinking about it and I had put the tweet up about getting uh, 4,000 women to circle Parliament House and turn our back on Parliament. So, I thought, okay, that's a, that's a real possibility without really understanding anything about sort of permits or rallies <laughs> or anything. Um, and then I, from there, set up an open Zoom meeting. I had about 60 people come into that Zoom meeting and I just started uh, putting together a group of people to help me do what I originally thought would be amassing 4,000 women. What was extraordinary to me when I uh, got involved and um, particularly when I first met you on the weekend before the rally when we had a, a briefing session um, with, with speakers and organisers, I was really surprised at how most people there didn't know each other. Everyone had come from 
all corners, but it, it, there was no particular one organisation behind this. And you didn't even know a lot of these people. And in that sense, it was incredibly organic. It felt both weird and wonderful. And that's what its beauty was. It was organic. And the women that I was working with to put this together, I had never met before. And that came with its its joys um, and some frustrations because you're learning as you go along and you're learning about people's skill sets. And because we had to move really, really quickly, I had to put in a very hierarchical structure just to get things done. But that was really the beauty of it is just harnessing this energy, putting it together, allocating uh, tasks to people and setting up small teams, events teams, socials teams, logistics teams to just get on and get it done. And golly gosh, did we ever get it done? (laughs) Um, Really? I mean, I think uh, it was effectively 12 days. We amassed 110,000 women, 47 rallies across Australia and two in the UK. Quite phenomenal. Extraordinary. What was interesting about what you just said then is that you did set up a hierarchical structure Mm. and allocated tasks. Again, often in women's activism, there is a a move against hierarchy Mm. and there is a lot of collaborative decision-making. So this was really quite different and I noticed that very early on too. I was told you speak to this one about that, you speak to this one about that and the decisions were being made constantly. There was no collective decision-making, which is interesting. You come from an academic background. Mm -hmm. You, um, as a a marketing strategist and you've done a lot of lecturing, Monash University in Melbourne and also RMIT – I understand you have a number of visiting um, professorships, uh, not just in Australia, but also around the world, in Mm -hmm. Paris and Boston as well. So you've really got a sharp eye for strategy, Mm -hmm. and I I suspect that's what made this so very different. You were very focused on the strategy. I think you're right. I I did put my strategic strategic hat on. I knew that if we were going to pull it pull it off, that there really wasn't time for a lot of collaboration. And um, yeah, absolutely. I was very much focused on what we needed to do and the skill set that I had in making that happen. And I think that's what set this apart from other protests that that have been organised by the various women's movements in Australia and is that that it is very collaborative. But they all had time on their sides. I didn't have mm. time on my sides. This was harnessing the energy and moving really quickly. I didn't want to have this rally in October, November. Yeah, why did you just set the day and, and you gave yourself two weeks? Well, I think most people would, I know in women's groups normally would set the date for next year perhaps or the end of the year. I mean, why, why make it so tight? Well, I was originally going to do it on International Women's Day, which would have given us a week, um, <laughs> but uh, learnt uh, very early on that Parliament wasn't actually sitting on International Women's Day and so I made a decision that... That, uh, for whatever reason, it was important to me that it was the first sitting day, which was the 15th of March. So, yep, gave ourselves two weeks. Can I just ask you, Did was there ever a time during that period of preparation when I know you didn't sleep very much, but was there ever a time when you thought, no, nah, it's not going to work, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to stop this? It, 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 yes. It, we've taken off or we've bitten off more than we can chew. This is unrealistic. Yes. There were, there were tears. There were sleepless nights. There were, what have I done? Absolutely. 
absolutely there were times Did you feel enormous personal pressure and and um, even embarrassment about this? I, I, embarrassment about, gosh, what if it doesn't work? I've put my name and face all over it. Absolutely. Um, I felt the weight of what was happening, particularly as it kept expanding. So remember, it was just going to be Canberra. And in fact, mm. before that, it was just going to be me and my seven friends. And then it was... And me. And yeah, me. And you, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you were included in one of the seven friends, Virginia. And then it was, well we want to hold something in Melbourne and we want to hold something in Sydney and it just kept growing and then and then it took on a life of its own and we're getting phone calls from someone in Lismore and someone down in the Mornington Peninsula and someone in Bunbury and it's kind of like, okay, we can we can we can do this. So I think I just had to honor that. And you were extremely impressive in honouring everyone's input too. I've got to say, and as a communication strategist myself, I watched a few times and I thought, isn't isn't there a danger of the message getting out of control? You didn't seem to be worried about that. You seem to, for those who were organising events in other cities and regional towns and what have you, you really did hand it over to them. And the message nevertheless was consistent. Hmm. We How did. did you do that? Uh, we did hand it over to them. I, I put together guidelines and what was really important to me, the, the most important thing, that this be an apolitical movement. I felt that if we were to have traction long term, it could not be focused just on one government or the, the current government because the reality is the the Labor Party certainly have their issues as well and if we're going to get systemic change and the change that we really need to make long-term changes here, it has to be there. So I was always very clear in my messaging to the groups that that, that needed to form part of the, the core value as to what and how we did it. And by and large, people really honoured that. And I never suggested for a moment that people couldn't have their own political views. Gosh, I have my own political views and they're not difficult to to find out. So certainly take those views. But in the case of March for Justice, we are an apolitical movement and it worked. It did work indeed. Mm. I want to turn to you personally and find out a little bit more about who really is Janine Hendry. But just before we do that, we're just going to break for a short ad. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. 
Welcome back. Janine, the march aside now, I just want to have a little insight to who you are. And as I said at the beginning of this, yes, you're a a, a very successful academic, a a lecturer. Um, You hold a number of, of visiting fellowship and professorship positions. You also started up um, the Guild of Objects uh, in Melbourne, a, a, a beautiful space for uh, artists and creatives to, to grow their both their creative spirit and their work, but also to develop their business skills. Yep. So you're someone who has actually been quite a leader in your field for some time. I just want to step back though and something that perhaps people don't know about you is your own personal story can you can you tell us about the first big organizational thing you did after the death of your son Bryn sure so my first son Bryn died he committed suicide when he was 16 and as I'm sure any of your listeners can imagine the enormous pain that anyone suffers, but particularly a mother and a father when you lose your child. And following Bryn's death, I made a decision that I wanted to do something amazing to honour his time with us. So I started a charity and a bit like uh, the march, I uh, had made a decision I was going to build a school in his memory. And why wanted, a school? Why a school? Because I believe being, a, being an academic, I really see education as, a, as really a key to power. And I also recognised that we often take education for granted in this country, but for some mothers – they don't have the opportunity even to give their children an education because there's simply no schools or they can't afford a school. And so I wanted to reach out to other mothers who, for whatever reason, didn't have an opportunity to give their children an education and to offer them that as my gift to the world. So I liaised, my first school, I liaised with World Vision and we built a school in Vietnam, in the north of Vietnam, which currently has about 450 students um, enrolled. Can I just jump in there and ask you, though, how did even that work when you go to World Vision and say, I have this idea, I want to build a school? I mean, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised if a few people come up with ideas like that, but how, how did you make that work? Because yeah. you have actually now built – and, and supported over nine schools. Correct. One of the things I learned, Virginia, is no one questions a grieving mother. And so <laughs> when I said I was going to build a school, no one really questioned me. They all, oh, okay, how, how are you, you going to make that, that happen? And it did take a, it did take a lot of um, research, but... Uh, <laughs> I, 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 look, I don't know the answer to that. It did take <laughs> it a lot of research. So, so, so the first school, effectively, we came to an agreement with World Vision and fundamentally I raised the money and they undertook the construction. And I was going to stop there, but uh, I was actually in Vietnam and going to, as it turned out, the opening of the school. And these things are, are 
serendipitous. I was on a boat in the Mekon River and I met a guy who (laughs) had got an inheritance from his grandmother and he was building orphanages (laughs) in Africa. And we started chatting and he said, you can't just stop at one, Janine. You have to build some more schools. And so he introduced me to, in fact, the Minister for Education in Cambodia and I then just started building more schools. So it was really serendipitous and we've changed the model and I now build them. Don't need another charity. We are now a registered charity and we've got schools in Cambodia and across Africa and, of course, Vietnam. And we're looking at uh, Burma and also India as soon as COVID stops. So I think it's just the question, how did I do it? I did it because I wasn't going to give up. And that's what happened to March. You were one of those people that one um, occasionally meets in life and you just think, my goodness me, that person is just meant to be. I just am so blown away by not just the serendipity of what you just described, but also the fact that you ran with it. Yep. You know, you, you, and, and because again, you know, we can all have great ideas, but you run with them mm. and you're not whilst exhausted and as I saw during the march and at times overwhelmed you're not actually overwhelmed by the task and the vision what is it about you I don't know I don't I, I really I really don't know I, I mean, laugh I, I laugh now I'm just going to share with those listening that I'm watching you and yes I love the way you keep looking up at the sky and throwing your hands up to say I don't know I don't know I mean I had a very, perhaps a very odd upbringing. So I lost my mother when I was six and I was raised by my father in a single parent household through the through the 70s. And during the time, it was, it was perhaps quite odd. So I learned to be really independent from a very young age. But my father it was really quite unique in some ways because he always used to say to me, Janine, you can be anything you want in the world. But first of all, You've got to be you and you've got to sit within your authenticity. And the second thing that is really, really strong in my family upbringing, that was just part of what I was brought up with, was that we're only as strong as the community within which we live. And so it's really important that you strengthen and you build that community And I think I've just lived with that all my life and there must be just something inside me which is really about harnessing and bringing people together to create, to, to create communities. And, and I do, I'm really motivated by, by equality. I think education is really, really important, but I also fundamentally right into my core believe that, that we are all equal. And that we must, we must embrace embrace that. You raise a, a number of things there that I, I want to pick up on, but one that is particularly interesting because this is becoming a theme in broad talk interviews with amazing women like yourself is the presence of a supportive father. And we interviewed Amanetta, um, who also spoke at the Canberra March just recently. She also had an incredibly strong, supportive father that, mm. that, that believed she could do anything. And a number of other women I've interviewed are the same. Uh, even Julie Gillard would say the same too. Um, her father was incredibly supportive and she had a very close relationship with him. And I, I would say the same. Um, so that, that is interesting to reflect on that you were brought up by your father, mm. who gave you 
all the messages around independence and your your value, your worth and your entitlement mm. to do anything and be yourself. Um, very, very powerful. Were you an only child? No, I was the youngest of six children. My goodness, me. I know. Um, and my dad is 95 now and still extraordinary. Still rides his bicycle and grows his own vegetables. And oh. he's, he is amazing. And uh, when I started March for Justice, he was on the phone every morning just oh. telling me, that uh, I could do this and it was wonderful and and that he was pretty proud of me and I thought, okay, okay, that's enough oh, for me. Oh, Janine, that is so beautiful. That <laughs> yeah. is so beautiful. He must be incredibly proud of you. Yes. And to see you splashed all over the media and all over the television news and particularly around the march itself and the Prime Minister talking about you and uh, Parliament talking about mm-hmm. you, he must be very, very proud. That 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 is beautiful. I note too that you, uh, in your role as an academic, but also as a as a philanthropist, you've given a number of keynote speeches, and many in which, f- for some years, you have talked about women's empowerment. Mm-hmm. Why? I think it's really it's really about equity. I think that that it is important that women are empowered, and I think that 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 empowerment is is about giving women choice and what I see and certainly in even in my own personal experience is that it's very easy for choices to be taken away from women for whatever reason because they don't have the um, economic stability because they don't have uh, access to education so therefore on a, on a personal level, I I do see empowerment and autonomy as critical components in creating what is a what is an equal society. Which winds us back really full circle to the march itself. One of the things that struck me was the apart from the power of the march was the myriad issues that we all brought to the stage as speakers, but also those at the rally. Not everyone was there because specifically they had been uh, a survivor of, of gendered violence or even fully understanding the, 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 the depth of that issue in Australia and the depth of experience in Australia. But w- women and men were there also because they just have a very strong anger and frustration around inequity, gender inequity, right across this nation and beyond. At one point, I was doing an interview on the day of the march, just before it started, where a radio announcer said to me, oh, Virginia, people don't understand what this this rally is all about. The messages aren't clear. To which I reply, well, you're just not listening if that's what you think. Uh, you know, you're not hearing or you're choosing not to hear because I think the messages are really clear. Do you think the messages were too expansive or was it clear enough? That's a really, a really great, a really great question. And I think that there were two issues, but they were interrelated. And so I can see how people got there. We started these marches in sheer anger, visceral anger at the 
level of gendered violence in Australia and the Australian government's subsequent approach to dealing with uh, the um, gendered violence in Parliament. So there were many people at the marches who were really focusing their frustration and anger and hurt on this issue of gendered violence. But for me personally, the issue of gendered violence needs to be addressed in relationship to the issue of equity because until we really focus on on equity, then we really can't do anything about changing the narrative around gendered violence. So I think it's further complicated by fact that if we're starting to talk about the issue of gendered equity in relation gender violence in relation to equity, then you've got to look at how you approach it. And what I was proposing is that to change, we have to change it both on a on a behavioural and cultural level. So change the narrative and and ensure that people can talk about it and they're empowered to talk about it. And this gets back to the first one we're talking about, um, Chantel Conte, and we're listening to the stories about how disempowered these young women were in terms of their their own sexual experiences. Um, So change the narrative, but we also need to change what is happening on a systemic Mm. and structural level. When you talk about equity, can I just get you to unpack that a little bit? What do you mean? Because I I happen to be having this conversation, this very conversation yesterday with a young woman. What do you mean when you talk about equity, Mm. gender Equity. And I think there, there's two. Do we, are we talking about equity or are we talking about um, equality? Equality. So it's, um, it, it's important to, to unpack that. And as I see it, it, it is really about equal access to the uh, decision-making structures and all of the things that impact on our, on our lives. Because if we've got that, then we're starting to talk about things like equal pay. And then we start equal having representation equal, and yep. participation in politics, of course. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I find that, uh, and this is where, again, the, the march has, has really opened up these discussions in a way we haven't been having properly forever, really. But I've, I've been surprised at how many discussions I've had where, particularly with younger women, where the idea that the issue about women's leadership is more than just women achieving leadership positions and, and you know, better paid positions and higher profile. It's actually about the decision-making, being at the cabinet table, being in the parliament, being in the boardroom, not to further a woman's career but rather to be influencing and participating in the power around the decision-making particularly in Parliament where all the law legislation is is drawn up and passed and the laws that affect all our lives is made, be they tax laws, finance laws, uh, social service laws, whatever they are, they affect all of us. And to think that women have never, ever played much of a role at that level is is extraordinary and appalling. It is absolutely extraordinary and I think that's that's really the heart of it. And the same can be said for our law courts, the same can be said for our universities, our major corporations. 
They're Mm. making decisions that affect our lives on every level. And those decisions are about the products that are available for us to buy, about the technology that we use, about the… The algorithms of the the, technology. Correct. Absolutely. about Great sexism in algorithms. Mm -hmm. Um, The the courses that we study at universities, um, how those and why those subjects are, are taught, the findings of our law courts, every single aspect of our lives is impacted upon that. And and that is why it has to it has to change. And I can't believe that we're sitting here in 2021 that we're even having this conversation, Virginia. I really I know, I know. I, I, know. I don't understand. Yeah. It. You and I are the same age or thereabouts, and I've got to say the number of times I found myself thinking and indeed saying that, um, I was having these conversations 35 years ago. When I first entered media as a journalist, um, I was having these conversations in the newsroom, and Mm -hmm. here we are. We, I could have a long conversation with you for hours upon hours. We've only got a few minutes left, but I, I do need to come back to mm-hmm. the big question. Where next? What next? How next? Now, you and I, I've noted, have been part of a, a, a recent um, debrief, a women's mm. group organised, um, a number of collaborative organisations coming together to talk about what next. And I'm sure you've been part of many of those over the last week or so. What do you think? How how do we move forward? What should happen? Do we need to do anything? We need to harness what we've started. And what we have now is incredibly powerful. We have across Australia thousands of women on the ground in the communities. So we need to harness that energy because they're the women that are going to change the narrative at a community level. Remember I said, raised by my dad, we're only as strong as the communities that we live in. They're the women that are going to strengthen strengthen those communities. And so what we need to do is harness, harness that energy and give those communities the resources that they need because they know what's happening on a local level. How do you do that though? But how, how do you give them the resources and and what's the role you play in that? I'm not really um, I'm not really sure. I've been spending clearly a lot of time in the last two weeks identifying that and looking at the best plan forward, knowing that that's what I want to do. I think the big question is. The, the how, and I'm still in consultation. But I would think in the next week or so we'll we will have that moving forward because it's such an extraordinary resource, and mm. we've just got to um, I think put the frameworks, put the governance structures in place, and that's what I'm working through now to try and identify in conjunction with the people that have been operating in this space for a long time. There's a lot of expertise out there. My expertise is really strategic. I need to take advice and um, and look at it. But, yeah, I'm, I'm in for the long haul. You've clearly identified that when I take on something, I don't really <laughs> give up until I've, I've succeeded. So I'm here. I can see that. I, I've just got to say it's interesting to hear you say there's a lot of expertise out there. There is, and I've been, mm. you know, working, I guess, with, with, with many of those with expertise for a long time. But you made it happen. Mm-hmm. You actually I don't know. You, you lit the, the lit the wick. Um, mm. You made it happen. So there's something 
that we all need to really think about the way that you did that. And it does seem to come back to strategy and very clear decision making and, mm. and clear messages. So when you talk about harnessing this energy, are you hoping to centralize uh, the movement or do you see the movement, as we're already calling it, as something that has just dozens and dozens and dozens of, of pathways into various different communities, industries, workplaces, and that it's up to everyone now to to do that themselves? I think it's important that it be decentralised. As we said, I put in a very vertical structure to get the marches to happen. Um, now is the time to decentralise, but to, if you like, put the put the strategy around. So do what I do, which is strategy, identify that strategy, the governance frameworks, and support the communities in changing the narrative and, and looking at what's important in their communities. So that's the process we, we're going through now. But there's still a role, I think, in working to create that, that systemic and structural change that absolutely has to happen in throughout our major institutions. We've got to, we've got to change that. We, there's no point just changing the narrative if the institutions don't change. Hear, hear to that. Janine, as I said, I could speak to you for hours, but we are going to have to end it there. But boy, oh boy, it's been such a delight to talk to you and to get some of that insight too. And it further excites me about what next. So I want to, I want to thank you. And I, without sounding too lofty, if I may, I'd like to thank you on behalf of all the women I know and all the women I work with. Um, you have done an extraordinary thing and we all thank you. We are in awe and we all thank you. And thank you for joining Broad Talk. Thanks. Lovely to be here. And thank you for joining us for another amazing discussion with an incredible woman. Um, we've got some men coming up too, I must say. But if you've enjoyed uh, this discussion with Janine or any of our uh, guests on Broad Talk, please do let me know. Reach out. We have our Facebook group, not as big as Janine's, but our Facebook group, Broad Talk, all one word, and jump onto the group, click on the group to join, and Martin and I will throw open the doors and pull up a virtual chair. The group is called Broad Talk Roundtable. And look, I pop in there most days and just post bits and pieces, and I'd love to hear from you. What are you thinking What's worrying you? What would you like to talk more about? What are the questions you have for me? Uh, and look, we post a few interesting articles that that are floating around that we think um, broad talkers might be uh, keen to to read and uh, comment on as well. So please do feel free and start your own discussion there if you wish. But once again, thank you so much for your participation and for being a terrific supporter of Broad Talk. And thank you to Martin, who's waving at me. It's time to finish. So until we meet again very soon with more fabulous discussions, to all our Broad Talk community, happy chatting.
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.